Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Lucy Houndsom. In this episode, we will be exploring the power of women. Women who are coming into power. Women who have had their power and agency stripped from them. Those who have spent their lives underestimating their strength and those who have struggled to make use of their power. Our world's power structures are set up to benefit men and keep women down. So how does women's power play out in our narratives? And what happens when women are suddenly given a power they are usually deprived of? We are very lucky to have Mena Van Prague joining us for this discussion, whose recent novel, The Sisters Grimm, explores power and gender dynamics. So Mena, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, I'm Mena Van Prague, and The Sisters Grimm is my debut fantasy novel. I've written seven magical realism novels uh, before this, and The Sisters Grimm will be a trilogy. Awesome, and it's coming out the end of March, I believe. Yes, it's out in England uh, already, February 6th, and then it's out on the 31st of March in America. Awesome. So, you know, if you haven't picked it up in the UK, do it now. And the US, put it on your waiting list. Like, get it out there. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So, I mean, all stories are ultimately about power. Who has it, what they do with it, and how others can take it away from them. But when we talk about power in a narrative sense in stories, you know, what do we actually mean? I mean, I'm very interested in writing uh, about power, especially about female power, and especially about um, how power is taken away from women and how we take it away from ourselves without realizing it. Um, The external blocks to us being powerful and the internal blocks. I think I'm probably more interested in how we internalize um, self-doubt, all of that sort of thing. So when I was writing The Sisters Grimm, I wanted to look at women, young women, who don't believe in themselves, who don't believe in their ability to be powerful as much as that society is stripping their power from them. I mean, that's something that I see all the time in like replicated in our stories of of women who don't believe in their power or the kind of the we're replicating the structure that we see day to day where it's kind of expected that women won't have power and then it's easy for us to then believe that we don't even if we actually do um and it's it's quite frustrating but you know certainly it's something that I deal with all the time I have very low self-esteem and seeing that replicated in stories and and women feeling like they don't have whatever it takes to do what they need to do in the story setting it's really it, it potentially quite damaging yeah and I, I think that's why it's really important to write these kind of stories so that women can see themselves in them so one of the most powerful books that i read recently was circe by madeline miller and i loved i i mean i related to her so strongly um, even though she's, you know, a Greek god, goddess, which, um, but she, her, the character arc was her being very submissive, you know, wanting the approval of men, um, wanting love, wanting romance, wanting fatherly approval. And it takes her so much, you know, internal searching and external devastation before she becomes her own woman and in a way I think every story that I write is a take on that Um, and probably every story that I love is that in some form. Yeah I I really liked that book as well especially the way it felt like she was kind of rejected by not playing up to those expectations. Like she wasn't there as, you know, the Aphrodite or any of those kinds of characters, just beautiful there to be looked at and fawned over. And because she didn't fit into one of those categories that it's perceived women are allowed to take, she was then lesser 
and she had to find her own way of, I guess, f- finding power because she goes and finds her abilities to do things without um, the the kind of normal structure of the gods in that sense, uh, which is, yeah, it, it was a very, not to say power too many times, it was a very powerful story and I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yes, and I think that I'm just remembering now there's a moment where her sister talks about power and how it's the only thing that the men in the story respect. And she has tried to get male approval by being submissive. And I think that, for me, that's a very interesting dynamic. And I explored that a bit in The Sisters Grimm, the way that women, you know, the sort of subversive ways that we try and get power by being submissive and being pretty and being nice. Um, And I think those are very self-destructive, but they're quite programmed into us. It's, you know, it's like the way that you see, I have a little girl who's three and a half and, you know, I don't feel like I've taught her these things, but you see her, you can see her being coquettish. And I think, you know, where did that come from? I think there's so much of that is internalized and then we pass it on without realizing it. And I think that, you know, that's an awful shame. That's something that I really struggle against myself. So this is probably a good time to talk about kind of the ways in which um, female characters are often portrayed as the kind of the weaker sex in in our fiction. You know, for example, there is the historical woman. We talk about this quite a lot on this podcast. We see them in mothers. Um, we see them as romantic interests. Very much when it's the romantic interest, quite often it's as a kind of orbital around the male hero. Um, and then there's also something we touched on really recently about men being defined by action and their actions, whereas women are very much characterised and defined by their personalities. And again, we talked in our Lady Hawk episode about the damsel in distress and how that has shaped kind of female representation for the, the last, I don't know, however many hundreds of years. It's probably one of the oldest tropes out there. So kind of what kinds of tropes and and power dynamics, How what are stuff that we're still seeing? Like what what is still kind of cropping up in our fiction today? And not just in our fiction, like on the big screen, because I feel like there are there are tropes and there are um, there are roles that women have had that are just we're still not kind of leaving them behind entirely. Yeah, I completely agree with that, and I think even when we're seeing powerful women in certain ways, they're still holding on to a lot of the other tropes, um, and there are certain things that I think that we never see. So the so-called bad mother, I think that's a really interesting thing about how we still define women in terms of their relationships. Um, You don't really get the lone wolf so much. And it seems unbelievable to people that a woman wouldn't want a love interest or that she wouldn't want children ultimately. And I think that is a really damaging trope. Mm. Do you know it's the ultimate double standard is the 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 woman not wanting, you know, think people thinking, oh, there's no way a woman wouldn't want a relationship because again, something we talked about recently is this, and it always really annoys me, is how um, many people kind of damn female protagonists and female writers of fantasy saying that their books are full of romance when actually every single male authored book of fantasy that I've read has got a romance plot in it. So mm. it's not that, you know, like if we read a book and it was written by a man and which many, many of them are in this genre um, <laughs> and it's a male hero um, and he didn't have a, a woman on his arm, it would actually be quite unusual. So, but we don't seem to, we judge these things by different standards. You know, one is labeled right and good and that's fine. And the other one is labelled, ugh, full of romance, uh, full of like fluffiness, and we're not interested. So what is this dichotomy? Like, wh- why do we have such different standards of, for each gender? Yeah, I think that's really interesting because 
as you're talking, I'm thinking that romance for men seems to make them, you know, stronger and more virile and their, you know, it's all about their masculinity and their ability to attract women. And when you turn that around for the woman, it's much more coming from a passive stance. And there's something about women being needy and, you know, submissive and attaching themselves to men. And you, we really don't have the same standards when it comes to romance. So even when you have romantic male plots, they're very different to female romantic plots, the way that the characters are portrayed. Yeah, I think it's also interesting when you look at it, as you were saying, you know, men, uh, it's shown that they're, you know, virile and, and people want them and that gives them power in a sense. But women, it's like they don't have any value until someone finds them romantically interesting. Mm. And that in itself is problematic. And really upsetting because it it kind of says well a woman isn't even important to the story until she's kind of the center of attention for the man um and i really dislike it but also linking back to what you're saying about mothers what i think is interesting as well is that when you have characters who male characters who struggle to connect with their children they're not necessarily branded as bad fathers or bad people. They're just, you know, unable to communicate or, or just they struggle with it. And that's kind of ex- understandable. But a mother who finds it hard to connect with her child, you're immediately a bad person. If you can't, if you're a mother and you cannot connect with your child, that's it. There's no, you know, oh, you can't communicate or there's just no leeway there because mothers are just expected to be able to have that good relationship. Like they're held to higher standards. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. The most interesting book I read recently in regards to that was called The Dutch House by Anne Patchett. Um, And it was so interesting because it was about a mother who left her children and the books told from the point of view of the children um, and they obviously have very strong anger towards her and everything. And then at the end, uh, spoiler alert, by the way, um, when she comes back, there's this scene between her and her daughter. And she says, this would never, you would never judge me the same if I was a man. And it was really interesting because the whole way through, the reader is judging this woman and it turns it all on its head because you think, you know, men so often go and leave their kids for, you know, I mean, not common to leave your kids for years, but it's not judged in the same way. So you could be a soldier fighting somewhere. You could be on an oil rig or something. Um, But it's not, you wouldn't get that sense of judgment on a man who did that or a man, like you say, who's emotionally shut down. But if a woman decided to go and, you know, study in the Amazon rainforest for 18 months and left her kids, I think, you know, society judges her in a completely different way. I think from all like the the tropes that Lucy mentioned earlier, they all kind of come down to power again, because like the hysterical woman trope is basically about how women are weak, they're emotional, they can't cope with things that are happening and we go all, ah, you know, we can't cope with that. And mothers are often considered weak in the sense that, well, they can't go off to war because they have to look after the children or they, you know, they're again emotional and they have that connection there. Um, and, you know, as we were saying, romantic interests, they're not valued unless they are pretty and attractive and and can win over the man um and then obviously especially the damsel in distress because they are ultimately just there to be rescued it's just really frustrating um when you do turn them on their heads and if it's the same thing for a man it doesn't have the same connotations so when you think about you know um a man who's in distress if he was saved by a woman 
that is immediately emasculating. Whereas, you know, saving a woman is something to prove their power. So why does it have to be that way? Why can it not be just if you save someone, you, you know, shows your power, your strength, your generous spirit? Why does it have to be something good for a male character and something bad for a, a female character? It's really interesting that that because I think we talked about that um, with Kate on one of our recent episodes about, you know, a man. I think she gave the example of like a man falling in a ditch and a woman falling in a ditch. And the fact that every time like it's no matter who falls in the ditch, the act of saving tells us a lot more about the man than it tells us about the woman. So it doesn't matter if the woman falls in a ditch and the man saves her. Well, then he is a bastion of chivalry and strength. Um, and if the woman, if the if the man falls in the ditch, then it's like, oh well, and he has to be saved by the woman. Well, then, oh, well, he's as Megan was saying, it's an emasculating action, and the oh, he has to be saved by a woman. So why is the onus always on the man? Like when in these two situations, why? Why is that? It's so strange that we that our first reaction is to think that this this scene says something about the male character, whereas we kind of don't really think about what it might say about the female character. Yeah, I think there's so much that we've one of the best books I read recently uh, about feminism. I'm trying to remember the title. Um, and it was written by a French um, author and a cartoonist. And she, you know, was drawing um, these little sketches and then writing about them. And she was talking about how women internalize the male gaze. It was, I think it was called The Mental Load. Um, and talking about all of the passive, so-called passive things that women take on board, um, organizing and everything in addition to housework and all of that. Um, and that we view everything through this prism. And I'm also fascinated by how women have always, we've had to relate to male characters. So, you know, so many films and books have male protagonists and women watch them and women are moved by them and we can relate to them because that's what we've had to do. But when you have so-called women's films and so-called women's fiction, which is, I absolutely hate that, you know, um, title, then they're different. They're separate. They're not something that then men can look through that prism. So, you know, we were talking earlier about um, The Princess Bride and how we all love it, even though it's very unfeminist. And we can get a lot of enjoyment through Wesley's character because we've been, you know, we've always had to look through the male protagonist to relate to the male protagonist. And if I think about the films that I really love, so many of them have male protagonists, but I'm still deeply moved by them at the end. And there's so many men that I hear that say, oh, I won't watch female-led films or I, I'm not going to read women's fiction. And I think that is a real, real problem. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know, I was just going to say that's exactly, um, I agree. And But, you know, for the first time, I'm beginning to see why men might say that. Because really, like, historically speaking, women have had, there's hardly any kind of, especially if we're looking at something like a quest narrative, like the epic fantasy quest, um, which is full of kind of epic fantasy, full of archetypes anyway. Um, but we're looking at something like that. There are so few women in the title role um, and and so few kind of um, positive portrayals of, of like feminine strength um, that no wonder I'm not defending them, but no wonder men say, oh, I can't empathize with that female protagonist. Because actually, like, what good female protagonists were around, like, before kind of this, this revolution took off, and we were actually beginning to say, no, look, we want to have women not just as heroes in their own narratives, borrowing kind of male strengths. We want to see true female power. 
you know, and I think that's that's really interesting that so many, you know, we are all okay with, we've spent hundreds and hundreds of years reading stories with male heroes and being completely okay with empathising with that because we're all fucking hell, we're all humans. Um, but it doesn't go the other way. And I suppose I don't know if I've ever really paused to wonder why men say that, you know, before. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm just thinking that there was a poem on Twitter, I wish I could remember it now, by Scarlett Curtis, and she was writing about that she took her dad, Richard Curtis, the you know famous screenwriter, um, and her brothers to see Little Women, and none of them had read it, I think, or seen any adaptations before, and she wrote this lovely little poem about how she'd spent her childhood empathizing with all of the you know and playing with her brothers with all of the male characters like Peter Pan and in Narnia and all of these but they didn't do the same with female characters yeah it's just it's kind of depressing (laughs) (laughs) it is kind of depressing hey but they don't have an excuse anymore They've got all the amazing books out there with great female characters. There's literally no excuse not to be able to empathise with a female protagonist. Yeah, but I think it's such a shame because I I think even with younger men, there's something where they feel, some of them feel that feminism is something that's against men. Because I was chatting with my nephew and he's uh, 16 and he loves superhero films, right? So we were talking about all these different superhero films and so on and so forth. And then I said, oh, are you going to see Wonder Woman? And this was like last year or year before. And he said, oh, no, because she's a feminist. And I said, (gasps) you know, what does that, you know, I had to sort of suppress my rage and then say, well, what does that mean to you? You know, what does feminism mean to you? And he said, oh, you know, that she hates women. Uh, Sorry, that she hates men. And I said, no, that isn't what feminism means. And I remember from myself going to see superhero films and, again, having to relate and put myself in the place of the male protagonists. And I swear I had some kind of extraordinary epiphany when I saw Wonder Woman um, and Captain Marvel, actually. And it was an extraordinary to me. And I looked at them and realized I mean I think I cried from the experience of just having never seen a character a central main character who was a woman and who was all powerful before can I be controversial then (laughs) oh you know you love it (laughs) (laughs) I always am the controversial one no it's just I was very excited to see Wonder Woman But then I was really disappointed by the film because I felt like you have this great female character, she's this powerful being, and she spends the majority of the film running around after a man pretending to be his secretary. And again, you know, Gal Gadot is one of the most beautiful women on the planet Mm. and they marketed it and... Really pitched it as this wonderful feminist film with this strong female character, and and it was great to see you know a a titular female superhero like that was great, but I still felt that she very much played into those same stereotypes. She was still there as the love interest, basically. She was still kind of following the man on his journey. She was there protecting him. And and at least in that sense, it was an example where I don't think that her saving him came across as emasculating, probably because she was an Amazon. She had basically magic powers um, and he didn't. So it kind of managed to escape that emasculation problem, I would say, that, that it often happens when a woman saves a man. But other than that, I felt like it did still really, really sit well within those tropes and expectations of female characters. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think it's an example, you know, that we're allowed, you know, the boundaries are 
stretching a little bit, but we still are only allowed to have those powerful female characters as long as they, you know, register with the other tropes. So I would love to see a lead female powerful character who is not a size eight. I mean, that bothers me so massively and also stunningly beautiful even when she's referred to as plain sometimes, which is like my biggest bugbear. Um, you get this gorgeous Anne yep. Hathaway <laughs> character and she's like, oh, she's so plain. And I'm like, no, she's not. It's very irritating. Um, but all the superheroes and all of the women still have to be ex- incredibly beautiful and incredibly thin. And I think that is h- hugely problematic. And this is where Lucy and I would say, this is why we love Nimona and pretty much everything Noelle Stevenson does. Yeah, I love Nimona. It's a, a graphic novel. Oh, it was originally a, a web comic, I think. Um, and she turned it into a, a graphic novel. Um, it's really good. Highly recommend it for it's it's aimed at teenagers, but um, it's fabulous. And you have a, a female character who isn't a size six is looks like an actual human being um you know her her waist can support her chest you know (laughs) it's just all those kinds of things it seems like what's coming out of this is that we're saying that women can have power in the traditional sense of the word um most possibly you know if we're looking at in terms of wonder woman a masculine sense of the word they can be a superhero but there are caveats that it's like there's one step forward and two steps back. Like they can have this power as long as they are also thin, beautiful, um, conform to traditional feminine values, um, don't get too big for their boots, don't encroach too much on masculine pursuits. Um, like <laughs> I feel like there's you know, we're not in an we're not in unfettered territory here. There's you know, a lot of work to be done. Absolutely. I think that's completely true. It's like, I'm always thinking, I have this conversation with my mum quite a lot, that for all, you know, these years of feminism, and my mum was obviously a feminist in the 60s, uh, that we have come, you know, we have made a little bit of progress, but it's very, very, very slow. And there is much to be done. There really is so much to be done. But my, I, th- I think this is an interesting point to talk about kind of what happens when women are displayed or, or, or do show characteristics that are generally considered to be powerful and what that usually means. So from, you know, we've, we've touched on the idea that once the woman is more powerful than the man, what that tends to mean is that the man is emasculated and somehow that woman is bad or or even you know as as I've heard a lot of men say that you know feminists don't like men you know somehow the woman being powerful is kind of an affront to their masculinity um I also see that you know once a woman becomes really powerful they often are then cast as the villain um which I actually think is something that you deal with a bit in The Sisters Grimm, where it's a matter of perspective, which was quite interesting, um, where, you know, the, the, the sisters think of the soldiers, the men, as kind of the bad guys in the sense because they're fighting for their lives, but then the, the soldiers also think that they're fighting for their lives and therefore the women are the bad guys. So that's quite interesting. Um, I don't know what either of you think about this idea that once women become powerful, we're either, you know, mean for emasculating the men or, you know, we are so so bad that we become villains. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the thing about war as well has always fascinated me in terms of the two sides and how each side has to think that they're in the right because otherwise how could they fight the war? Um so that was something I found really interesting. And also the dichotomy, again, between the male and the female and the kind of fight that there seems to be where, 
women want to have more agency and more power, but then if men interpret it as hating men or that or that this idea that there is only so much power to go around or that there has to be someone who is lesser and someone who who is greater you know there's a real problem that we seem to have that we can't have total equality and it relate you know it relays itself in class terms as well as gender terms and it's just something and racially something that society seems to have a enormous problem with and nobody wants to give up their bit of power because then they feel that they'd be trampled on yes but it's that idea that in order to allow women to have that power or to to claim that that men would have to give something up and that isn't true it's not necessary mm-hmm. just a- allowing women agency or or you know, just that equal footing doesn't mean that you become lesser or that we're taking anything away from men. It's just kind of lifting the kind of the binding, taking away our handcuffs. You know, it's it's allowing us to get further ahead, but not while not taking anything away. It doesn't have to be about taking away. It's literally just making us equal, which is what feminism is all about. Um, which is crazy because I like referencing something we mentioned earlier and you were talking about your nephew. Um, was it your nephew? Yeah. Yeah. About the term feminism, which I think, you know, is, is, is probably very misleading because of the structure of the word. I mean, like it just means equality, but I mean, I was talking to a fairly popular figure in the publishing industry, um, a man some few years ago and, he started his sentence by saying, well, I'm not a feminist or anything. (laughs) I was like, whoa, I could not believe that someone who is clearly so has a lot of influence and is, is well read and is in the literary world just had so little understanding of the basic definition of feminism. Like it was some kind of bad word like it means female supremacy and I'm like it's not supremacy it's simply all we ask for is to be treated the same we're asking for equality Um, and that's what Megan was just talking about like we don't want you know for us to have power why does that have why does that power have to come from men surely we're stronger together yeah absolutely I completely I I think that's a, a huge problem I mean the idea that you know women are feminists whereas we should all be feminists like we should all want equality in all ways for all you know for gender race class it's not about each section of society fighting for themselves um and again just that idea of it being a fight you know it's such a shame I think the idea that power you know for women to acquire more power perhaps men think that that means that we're taking some of it away from them whereas it's not the case at all this is the central point about power really isn't it that it maybe it says something more about the concept of power and how people use and abuse it than it does about gender but of course you know gender touches on everything and I think this is just from what we've been saying so far. Yeah, I just think it kind of highlights the problem that we talk about on this podcast all the time, which is this kind of lingering inequality and double standards um, that we really can't seem to kind of break free of. I was thinking about um, when I was doing my creative writing diploma and we had um, someone who was uh, a well-renowned um theatre director, writer, he's decades and decades in in theatre. And he came and taught us about writing dialogue. And he was talking to us about how a conversation always has power. And an interesting one is basically, you know, as as Mena said, that it was a fight for power. So any conversation, he said, that's interesting and worth sort of putting in a play has to be about power not necessarily in the words like themselves but it's it's always um 
a kind of a, a fight to get on top. Um, and I thought that was really interesting now that we're talking about this and looking back on this idea of being taught to write and thinking about every conversation has to be about power and who has it, who doesn't have it, and how can we get it? And that in itself, it seems damaging. And I mean, I can understand the the thought behind it because obviously you want your characters to want something and to try and get it and that, you know, creates tension and it creates growth and all those kinds of things. And I understand it from that perspective, but the idea that we can't possibly even interact with each other in an interesting way unless we are vying for the position of power is quite sad. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole thing that everything is conflict, you know, we're always told in writing that everything has to be conflict and it's a boring scene if there's no conflict in it. And that does become problematic when you have relationships and they always have to be in conflict. I suppose that's why I'm so interested in internal conflict and how we self-suppress as much as how society and others suppress us. I want to track back a little bit to um, something we touched on in our discussion of Wonder Woman. This idea that when we present powerful female characters there has to be some you know it comes with a caveat you can be say you know wonder woman have this incredible godlike power but you still have to be beautiful do we think there's anything that's completely off limits is there you know a particular job or something that that we just can't see any women ever having in in any of our fiction or any special abilities that seem to to be kind of denoted as a masculine ability still that that if we put that kind of a power to a female character and presented it to modern readers or cinema goers etc they just wouldn't be able to cope with that i can't think of the the power in itself or or the the talent but anything that completely went against all the things that we believe in as you know as being feminine as femininity so so tracking back to what we were saying about romance and motherhood um you know whether it's heterosexual or homosexual romance the idea that women want love you know and without that it wouldn't be realistic you know i would imagine that readers would find that unrealistic um, whereas we can easily have a male character who just romance doesn't even come into it. I think the problem is something, again, we touched on before. I think you used the example of a woman going to the Amazon rainforest and you know on a 10-year-long research trip and abandoning her children, that kind of thing. So like, I think we can certainly give women kind of, we certainly give them kind of I, um, avenues of power that we you know, don't see very often. And that's fine. But I think then it results in the viewers of the film or readers of the book thinking more about what that says about women or that particular character rather than them, you know, I feel like when we read fantasy or science fiction, spectacle fiction, horror, like there's always an element, in fact, books in general, there's always an element of suspension of disbelief. Um, and I feel like that it's one of those situations where maybe you're trying to give them something that, you know, we don't see women possessing very often. Suddenly, instead of us being able to sit back and enjoy the story, we're finding ourselves questioning, oh, well, like you said, how could she go off and leave her children for 10 years? Or how could she do this? And it throw giving her that power throws her character and her femininity into relief and we start questioning that instead of simply taking her as she comes as a character and I wonder whether there's an element of that in that we we just cannot leave our own gender assumptions and assumptions about gender roles outside the narrative we just carry it all in with us and that blinds us to certain you know to certain storylines yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think that goes back to what Megan was saying earlier 
um, about Wonder Woman and how you still have those tropes um, about, you know, her being a secretary and chasing after a man and that we, we have still got that so strongly internalized in us that in order for audiences to find certain aspects of her acceptable, we have to ground other aspects of her in current day reality. And I just think that if we had a completely so-called masculine heroine, audiences wouldn't accept it. Audiences would be think, you know, you'd think, oh, but she's left her children. Oh, but why hasn't she, you know, wanted a man? And the, the thing of how compelling we find romance and love and uh, surrender, it would it would stop us from completely empathizing with her, which I think is a huge shame. I don't know, maybe it's possible and it's just not been done yet. That that would be my hope. Just to turn it on its head a bit, do you think this question can be applied in reverse? So is there anything about male power and how we expect male power to manifest that if you try to do something a little bit different in a story, it wouldn't make it believable? That's really interesting. I'm trying to think. There was something on Netflix with Keith Sutherland God, what was it called? About like he was something survivor that he was um, an Amer like American president, and he was kept aside. Like the Americans, when they all sit um, in the in the Senate, they keep one person away from the Senate uh, in case they're all blown up and they need a president. And he was that guy, and and he didn't want to be president, and he was like a pacifist and he didn't have a uh, political ambition. Um, and he, he embodied actually a lot of so-called feminine traits. And I thought he was a fantastic character, but it was really interesting because even as a feminist, you know, I was like thinking, is he totally believable? You know, because in my experience, all of these male protagonists especially in political dramas they want to have power they want to be the president they want to rule the world and when they get into wars they want to you know dominate everyone and I thought that was a really interesting example of flipping masculinity on its head that does I'm really glad that exists I mean I haven't heard of it or, um, before but designated survivor designated survivor I shall check it out because that sounds a little bit different yeah that's exactly what I meant by you know flipping it over and saying that you know why because this is what this is at the heart of feminism it's like it's actually not just a conversation about women it's very mm. much also a conversation about men and toxic masculinity and yeah. the boundaries that that toxic masculinity have kind of closed around men so they suffer just as much as women suffer so actually this the whole idea and the concept of the patriarchy is damaging to both genders and both gender roles and men yeah. and women equally so i think it's just it, I, I find it equally fascinating to find um you know creative pieces that that work the other way and seek to present male protagonists um in a way that we aren't used to seeing them so you know whether that means borrowing female traits whether that means simply you know not casting them as as the traditional hero um that we're so used to um whether that means you know looking again at kind of what it means to be a villain um and and whether there are certain traits that are tied to tied into kind of gender that that talk about heroism and villainy. I just think it's, yeah, it's something that I'm quite interested in, this this kind of reverse idea, because I feel like it kind of definitely, there's a conversation to be had that it definitely goes both ways. I was just waiting for you to bring up The Untamed, <laughs> because <laughs> I could talk <laughs> <Come> all <on>. night. <laughs> so then if you're looking at it from say western but then if you look at the sort of eastern traditions some things that in a western society we might look at as um feminine might not necessarily have those same connotations um so lucy and i have been completely addicted to this uh, chinese fantasy 
romance drama. Uh, it's amazing, called The Untamed. Um, <laughs> and but one of the the powers that they all or how they use magic comes from music, and you know playing the flute, and that is not something that would generally ascribe to a powerful masculine ability you know playing the flute like that's it it just doesn't really strike us like that so that for me i felt was quite refreshing but i'm not you know well versed enough in chinese literature chinese traditions to know whether or not that is something that would typically be associated with um you know male power or feminine power so they do ride on their swords as well they do <laughs> ride on their swords as well yes <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I you do raise an interesting point because yeah, there's the the stringed instrument as well, so it's not just the yes. it's, music is a big part of of that particular historical magical world. So yeah, and um, also <laughs> funny story, my I was uh, watching the Untamed and my mum came in, <laughs> and um, Megan will know what I'm talking about. It's the scene in the rain where the rain is coming down. It's very dramatic. Oh yes. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and of course the two main characters, they're both looking at each other with like longing in their eyes and their long, beautiful hair and their long, beautiful robes. And mum's like, Oh, so what's she doing? And what's she doing? And I'm like, mum, they're both dudes. (laughs) (laughs) The thing is, it's, it's kind of, in a way it's not her fault because all the men on that program are ridiculously beautiful. And (laughs) it sounds great. I'm going to have to check it out. Please do. But also don't blame us if you get addicted because I think (laughs) Meg spent the last 36 hours of her life (laughs) literally doing nothing else. Yeah, it was was quite intense. (laughs) But yeah, very interesting to talk about. Yeah, because we do talk, we we come at this quite frequently from a very Western perspective. So it's interesting to think about other ways that, you know, we could look at it from a different cultural perspective and it's just what we're most used to. Also going back to like the the original question about like, you know, what might be off limits for a, a female protagonist. I was actually thinking about um the Fantastic Four and the Thing, um, characters like Swamp Thing or even, you know, in uh The Shape of Water, where you have these kinds of protagonists and um, you know, important characters in a, in a narrative that are monstrous in appearance. They are completely ugly, you know, even the Hulk when he's in Hulk form, in those kinds of things. You just don't tend to see that for a female character. And I would say that the only one we actually get is Shrek. I thought which- you were going to say Shrek. <laughs> <laughs> Which was refreshing precisely for that reason. Um, but I cannot think of it. Like, obviously there is She-Hulk in the comics. But I was listening to your podcast recently about Shrek and I thought that was really interesting. And what you were saying about sort of quote-unquote ugly characters. And I remember watching Shrek and seeing, you know, when she didn't turn into this beautiful princess and finding that incredibly refreshing but you made the point that both characters had to be so-called ugly or so-called beautiful you couldn't have one of one and one of the other and I think those tropes run very deep Mm. Mm. I do think like having seen say Shape of Water now I think it is a lot more palatable to people to have kind of the quote-unquote ugly guy than it is to have an unattractive woman. So I don't know if we could... And even in um, The Avengers, they have the the kind of the romance between Hulk and... Um, oh, no, her name's gone. Black Widow. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and she's the beautiful woman and he's the big green, terrifying, whatever. And I just can't really see that playing out in the other way. No, I, I can't see that happening. I mean, you have, you know, Shape of Water, which is a retelling of Splash, essentially. Um, <laughs> and, yes, okay. You know, and Daryl Hannah is completely gorgeous. 
and um, conventionally stunning. And then you have Tom Hanks, who's a bit of a nerd. I mean, I think he's lovely, but I just don't think you'd get ever get that the other way around. I hope, I would hope, but I've never seen it yet. Mm. Do you think it's this fairer sex business? It's like women, there's something about women that we're supposed to be the fairer sex, we're supposed to look. And it's actually slightly dodgy, really, isn't it? And worrying that like we're kind of okay with bestial men with their bestial hands all over beautiful virginal women you know like <laughs> why can't it be why can't it be like a female frankenstein it's a frankenstein's monster even you know it's like why are we okay with ascribing these traits to men and male characters when we're not with women so i think yeah it's a really interesting point and it's one of those things you kind of don't think about until you think about it and then you're like my god i can't think of any examples at all yeah, and it's almost as if the bestial male, you know, like Beauty and the Beast and how that is such a popular um, fantasy fairy tale with and all of its retellings. And there's something about the young, beautiful girl who redeems the man and then they live happily ever after. But quite apart from the fact of whether or not he needs redeeming, I just can't think of any example where you have that the other way around. Mm. And that's really interesting because that ties into kind of something we talk, touched on before um, in a previous episode about, you know, virgins and villainesses and, and chastity and the idea that chastity is something that is particular to women, that it's mm. not a male thing. We don't really talk about male chastity and male virginity. Male virginity raises a totally different set of questions um usually comic questions than 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 female chastity and female virginity the whole idea of like the maidenhead and losing it um and it's it's for men it's completely different so the idea that you know the beast has to be redeemed by a chaste female like of course it we haven't seen it working in reverse because the ideas of chastity as we see them in popular media are very much tied to the idea of femininity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm also wondering if, so when you, you talked about Beauty and the Beast and so, you know, Beauty, she basically, you know, quote unquote, saves the Beast by redeeming him. Um, and I would say similarly with The Princess and the Frog, the traditional story of, you know, the princess kisses the frog and he becomes, you know, a beautiful prince or whatever. And it seems like these are exceptions to the rule of the woman saving the man. And somehow if, but often I don't, I don't know the original story of uh, princess and the frog and well enough to know, but certainly in, you know, beauty and the beast, it's usually that a, a wicked woman cursed him. Mm. And is it, is it somehow that, you know, if he's been cursed or he's become a beast somehow, that's the only time where it's not emasculating for the woman to save him? Or if a, a, a female, a villainess, has created this the, re the strife, that that's the time that it's okay for a woman to save them. But any other time, it's going to be emasculating. Yeah, and also she does it in these very feminine ways you know she does it through undying unconditional love that's how she saves him there's no swashbuckling involved yeah and again princess and the frog she just has to kiss him yeah <laughs> and yes <laughs> it's interesting that they're so enduring these stories it, it just reminds me of how refreshing buffy was you know, when I was a teenager. Yes. And like, I just loved Buffy so much because she was so like strong and she say, I, I'm recalling that she saved Xander quite a lot. And that was extremely yep. refreshing. God, I think she saved pretty much every male character on that series. <laughs> yeah. She was in extremely beautiful though. So there is that. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. But well, you know, she was fantastic and fun. <laughs> we t we take our victories where we find them. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think that's the conclusion of this episode. <laughs>
Um, before we do go, though, I did want to talk a little bit specifically about the Sisters Grimm because I found it really interesting in the way that you set it up with, um, I hope this isn't a spoiler, I don't think it is, <laughs> but the idea that the the soldiers, so the, the men, um, know that they have powers and have time to prepare and to practice and and use their power and they know what's coming and they you know they are ready basically whereas the sisters are unaware of their power and they don't have the same time for preparation the training the you know they're not expecting to suddenly be thrust into a world where they're fighting for their lives and to me i felt like that was a real metaphor for the real world in many ways in that you know opportunities are handed to men or or they're kind of trained and and given that self-belief and you know that you know told from a very young age you know you're going to be CEOs and you're going to be amazing and you're going to do this and that um whereas women are are often having to really work for that and and kind of you know it feels like we are often just working at a disadvantage and I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about that and and if that was something specifically that you wanted to address or why you felt that that was Im- an important kind of way to structure um the the power of the two kind of genders and and roles within the book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean it's definitely a metaphor. For me the whole book was very metaphorical and I think that's something that we can do very well in science fiction and fantasy. Um and the idea that men get prepared for life much better. And also the fact that, you know, again, we're, as we've been talking about the whole episode, we're, for women, we're fitting in to something that isn't, you know, a society that isn't tailored for us. I mean, there's a brilliant book just come out now, I can't remember, Invisible Woman, Invisible Women, and talking about on so many levels how women are having to fit into a society that's created by and for men. So you have things like um, car seats or seatbelts or something that aren't made for women, and then uh, drugs that are tested on men and don't fit, you know, for women. And there's all these kinds of things that we don't even realize that we're having to slot in and fit ourselves in. Like, you know, even uniforms. I was in a restaurant recently and uh, I commented on the waitress's um, uh, waistcoat because it looked really good. And she said, yeah, but they only make them, they make them men-sized and we kind of have to try and fit into them. Um, And that, you know, it's going on so much on so many levels. And so it was very metaphorical, this idea that women are kind of thrown into it and we don't necessarily know the rules and I remember that that was something that I very much had growing up you know going to university and then just thinking how am I surviving here how am I speaking up against not against but like trying to make myself heard or trying to be taken seriously um when I'm not expected to speak up in the same way that my, you know, the male students were and just not taken as seriously and trying not to be emotional and trying to fit into the rules so that I'd be taken seriously. And so that was very much on my mind when I was writing this book. That book is um, Invisible Women uh, by Caroline Criado Perez. Yes. Okay, I'm totally have to buy that book now. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> it, says, it says exposing data bias in a world designed for men. Yeah, it, and I remember I heard an interview with her and she was talking about, I specifically remember the bit about um, that they were testing a drug and they found out that it decreased female heart attacks, but they didn't carry on researching that. And they found out that it also 
um, gave men erections. And then they put like billions of pounds into, you know, the whole Viagra thing. And I'm like, that's what they considered to be important. Not, you know, saving lives, but giving men erections. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was like insane. Well, to to wrap things up, you know, at the end of this discussion, it, it seems like we've come to the conclusion that at the moment we'll take what we can get when it comes to powerful female <laughs> representation. <laughs> I mean, we want women to believe in themselves, to feel free to embrace their power without society casting them as emasculating or heinous. But remember that feminism is about equality. It's not about female pr- supremacy hating men or stripping anyone of their power. So we just, we want women to embrace their own power and to know that it's it's okay to be powerful or to aim to be powerful and to believe in yourselves. And you're not taking anything away from men by doing it. Exactly. Amen. <laughs> A women. Yeah, I was just thinking that. <laughs> Funny. well thank you so much for joining us Mena it's been really great thank you for inviting me Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom please help us spread the word subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform we want to hear from you let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper